I guess let's let's go ahead and get started then. Uh, I just went live on Facebook, so every, hey everyone tuning in on Facebook. Uh, hey everyone here on Zoom. Um, really excited today. Uh, as as I said before, Beth Azor, um, she's a great broker in in Florida. She has a lot of experience in the retail industry. She owns multiple shopping centers herself. So I think we're just going to learn a ton of great information about retail investing today. And as someone who has an interest in retail, I think I'm really excited to learn more about what your experiences are. So thanks for joining us, Beth. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ralph. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Yeah. And, and just for everyone who's, who's tuning in, Beth <laughs> is in Disneyland, the, the happiest place on earth. So, um, so thanks again for, for coming, for hopping on, even though you're in Disneyland. So no All problem. Right. Oh, of course. So generally speaking, when we have people come on to the, to the meetup, uh, we'd like to learn a little bit more about their background, their history. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you into real estate to begin with. Sure, my parents were in residential real estate. So when I turned 18, like any good offspring, I went and got my real estate license uh, while I was a college student. And I helped them throughout college summers, sitting open houses, doing things for residential and would very proudly say I would never do this <laughs> to them all through college uh, semesters and summers and um, I graduated Florida State with my degree in communications and English literature and uh, originally I thought I would go to law school. I, after five years at Florida State I'm like I'm done with school and I got a job as a special events coordinator for a not-for-profit and making a whopping salary of 11 grand. So I did real estate on the weekends. And after working two years straight, uh, two years, seven days straight, uh, the real estate gig said, come on, you know, come work for us. You know, you can make like 40 or 50 back in 1983. That was probably like 70 or 80 now. And I was tired of working seven days straight. So I took them up on their offer and it was a residential developer. And I went from loving my job at the not-for-profit uh, to now doing real estate, sitting in a trailer selling luxury homes in a residential development, and I hated it. And I went to the developer and I said, you know, we need to have some events or we need to market. And he said, no, you just sit reading People magazine and wait for people to walk in the trailer. So someone was helping us out on Mother's Day weekend, a receptionist, and she said, you know, during the week, I work for a commercial, uh, commercial developer. You need to get into commercial. And I said, ah, that's probably worse than this, selling land. Isn't that selling land? That's what I thought commercial was. And she said, no, no, we build shopping centers and you lease space to people wanting to open stores. And once you help them open their bagel shop or their dry cleaner, you become part of the family because you help them achieve their American dream. And I said, sold, you know, where do I find a job doing that? Because I thought that sounded so great. And she told me there's a company down in Miami that has a training program. I called there. The woman in charge of training was a sorority sister of mine at Florida State. She said, oh my gosh, just come down, meet the boss, you're hired. I was there 18 years. I eventually, uh, when I joined the company, we had 11 people. When I left, we had about 130. I had become the president. I had gone, gone from the rookie program to the president. I was the president the last six years I was there. 
And then I left uh, to start my own thing. Um, I was a single mom of a four-year-old and I couldn't run a big company like that and be a good mom. So I left and I said, I would, you know, I wanted to start buying properties on my own account. I had already been investing with my partner, my slash boss partner at the prior firm. And um, that's what I've been doing. I've been buying deals and I teach leasing agents how to fill vacancies in shopping centers around the country. And I've been doing that for the last 15 years on, on my own. That's awesome. And, and I, I've like, for those of you guys who are listening, she does have a few books out there. I've, I've read, uh, don't say no for the prospect. It's a great book by the way. And her, she does a lot of YouTube uh, stuff on YouTube that is also really, really great context. So if you're at all interested in retail, I think it's one of the go-to resources for that. And so that, that kind of leads to my second question, which is kind of, you kind of touched on it briefly, but what got you interested in the retail industry to begin with? Because there's so many different types of commercial real estate. Uh, obviously multifamily, industrial land, like you, like you said, it's not just the, the initial land that you thought it was. So what, what got right. you interested in retail in particular? So I think it was opportunity. I was started with the firm in Miami doing office leasing. And I just thought it was the most boring thing. You know, I would be touring law firms and investment firms and they were just very buttoned up. And it was, I just felt it was so boring. And then I got this opportunity to lease this shopping center where I was dealing with a bagel shop and a dry cleaner and a bike store. And I got to learn so much about so many different retail businesses. I found it fascinating. And it was just such a variety. It wasn't the same thing every day because you know, each, each different business has different margins, different markups, different occupancy costs. So I like to learn and I was learning every, you know, I still learn every day. I, you know, I was, I'm working right now with a pet store and I'm learning all about the pet industry. So I think that I had an opportunity. I really enjoyed it. I thought office leasing was really boring. And, um, and I think you can, you can uh, use more of your personality. Like, I don't think I'd, if I was in office leasing, Ralph, I would not be on a webinar with Disney Mickey Mouse ears. Uh, I think retail, you, you, there's way more room to be who you are and, and use your personality. That's awesome. That's, that's great to hear. And I'm, I'm actually working, that's, that's, those are two of my specializations. One's I'm working with multifamily investors and also the retail space, which I've really enjoyed so far. So it's kind of cool to hear how you got into it and how you value it so far. So the, the purpose of this call initially was related to retail investments. Uh, so this is someone, if someone's interested in, in delving into the retail space as an investment option, uh, could you kind of elaborate a little bit on the, some of the pros and cons of retail properties and why you think that you enjoy investing in retail properties? Sure. So, you know, there's a pre-COVID answer and a post-COVID answer. So um, I think that right now, there's a lot of naysayers in retail and I'm a big believer in supply and demand. So I think that's good for us. I think it's good for the retail investor that a lot of people are going to go running from it. Now you should stay away from malls. I think malls are um, going to be hurt significantly during the pandemic. I think what they've reported 30% of the malls have been closed and 50% of those 30 are not going to reopen. So I would not want to be in any kind of mall, um, acquisition unless you're in a multifamily guy or gal and you see that 50 acres or 30 acres or 20 acres, whatever that mall sits on in that municipality, um, if that could be uh, maybe an office park or a multifamily, then by all means. 
but I would not be investing in, in malls at this point. Um, what, what I invest in are small retail strips. Uh, I just built a three tenant retail strip with Starbucks with a drive-through as it's uh, at a, on its end cap. A few years ago, I, I, bought, I bought a strip club. Ralph knocked down the strip club and built a strip center. And that was five tenants. Um, I have uh, strip centers that are 15 to 20 tenants. So these are not grocery anchored. Um, maybe the anchor is a Panera Bread or a Mission Barbecue or a Chipotle. So, um, and they're usually right up on the street, like on a main street, high, you know, park, high um, traffic counts. Um, I love to buy centers near hospitals and near universities because of that daytime population, it gives the restaurants both a lunch business and a dinner business. And in retail, rent is 100% a function of sales. So the more sales that that uh, restaurant or retailer can uh, drive, whatever sales they can drive, that's how much rent they can pay. So, so the pros of retail is we're not gonna stop going to restaurants and, and service retail. Um, before the pandemic, I would be on podcasts and people would say, oh, it's all, all the retail's going online. And I said, okay, well, so I would ask people, like, like if I was speaking in an audience, you know, how much retail do you think of the $5.4 trillion of sales uh, in 2019, what percentage is online sales? And many, many people would throw, I mean, I would get numbers like 50%, 20%, and in actuality, it was 7, 7%. It has gone up since the pandemic for sure, but I think that will go back down again once people start getting out and shopping. But 7% of the $5.4 trillion of retail revenue sales was, was online. And back in the 60s, before you guys were born, uh, we had this thing called catalogs. And Sears catalog, Spiegel catalog, and the catalog industry was 10% of retail sales. So there's always been different ways to divert sales from bricks and mortar. So, but I don't believe bricks and mortar will ever go away. Do I think we should put our heads in the sand? Absolutely not. Do I think that our, our retail businesses should have multiple uh, lines of and sources of business? Absolutely. I have a a tenant, 2,500 square foot, uh, Miami Hurricanes, uh, the, the school, they have clothing and sports apparel and they have the Miami Heat and the Miami Dolphins. They do, you know, a multi-million dollar business in the bricks and mortar, but they also have a huge online business out of the bricks and mortar. So I think that they should have um, multiple sources of revenue so I think that retail is here, to stay, is here to stay. I think that if your audience is looking to dip their toe in the water, the next year or two, uh, the, the highest um, demand retail building to buy will be anything with a drive-through. Uh, we've got Panera, Chipotle, Starbucks are all, or they're converting all of their units to drive-throughs. So the demand for drive-throughs is going to go through the roof and then therefore the rents are going to go high too. So personally, I've been looking to buy bank branches that have uh, drive-throughs because I don't think bank branches in the next three to five years will be around. 
and I want to buy those and redevelop them into restaurants with drive-throughs. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll kind of supplement as far as um, the the center uh, concept. We have a few investors who recently bought just little smaller strip centers, and it seems like those are still trading at pretty good cap rates. So it seems like that's still a very strong demand for those type of properties. And it's interesting that you said drive-throughs too, because I've definitely seen, especially in our market, I've seen some banks that have closed that are on the market now and they're, they're touting the drive-through as an option to convert it into some sort of retail. So it's kind of interesting to hear you say that. Um, so I guess one of the other questions I had, which kind of blends into this, the previous question that we, we, we asked was, what are some of the most important things to consider prior to purchasing an investment? Uh, retail investment? So um, I think it's important to make sure that you, that you have a look at all of the leases. If you think it's something that you want to increase the revenue on, like if you think, okay, the market's improving and I can raise the rents, you need to make sure that you check the leases out and confirm that the seller did not sign leases with multiple fixed options. So that's one of the first things that I look at. Um, let's say I, I find a center and maybe I know that the rents in the area are 30 to 40 triple net and I find a center that the rents are in the 20s. So I'm very excited. But the second thing I ask for is I want uh, a list of all of the tenants and what are their options? Because if the seller thought he was doing a really good job and giving their the local tenants, non-credit tenants, four or five-year options at 3% annual increases, that's a problem for me as an investor because now I'm stuck with those lower rents versus if they kept them at options at market and when that tenant, that $25 tenant rolls and expires and I can renew that tenant at 35, uh, that's a much better situation. So I think that that's really, really, really important. And, and, and sellers think they're doing the, the investors a favor by locking in long-term deals, but not, it's not necessarily so. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely echo that as well. As far as the options concerned, for those of you who don't know what an option is, is essentially when, when you sign a lease, it, the, the owner is giving you the option to re-up on your lease for a certain period of time. Um, and what she was re referencing is that if the, the rates are below market and then all of a sudden the market rates decide to go up, the, the tenant has all the leverage. They can say after the, the their term's up to say, oh, well, I'm just going to renew my lease at that predetermined rate. Whereas maybe the market's $10 a square foot higher or $12 a square foot higher, it seems like in Florida or even here, for example. And that, that could be a problem as an investor because you're trying to maximize the rents in order to increase your the property's value. So uh, that's something that I agree is is extremely important. So whenever you're looking at, at retail investments, you definitely want to scrutinize the leases pretty rigorously. Um, definitely. Definitely. So that's some great information. And then as far as the leasing strategies are concerned, so for those of you who aren't familiar with Beth, she's the canvassing queen. Uh, she always references herself. Uh, so she- I got my hat right here, Ralph. That's awesome. No, but, but she's, I mean, phenomenal. And she's always providing tips on different ways to engage different business owners in the area. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about some of your favorite leasing strategies to lease out space in a center. So if you were to buy a center that maybe has vacancies, what's, how do you go from 50% vacancy to 80 or 90% uh, occupancy, I should say? Sure. 
So uh, the first and foremost is just hitting the streets, right? Not waiting for the tent, for the prospects to call off the signs. Literally going and knocking on doors and going to the shopping center across the street and down the street and a mile away, um, and and saying, hey, you know, I've got shopping centers nearby. What are your expansion plans? You, you know, are you happy with your center, your rent, or your landlord? Right. Uh, you don't want to encourage someone to break their lease to move to your shopping center, you're looking for them to hopefully open a second or third location. Um, or if their lease comes up and it's expiring, but they want more space, less space, um, they want more traffic, uh, they want a lower rent, whatever it is. So there's all kinds of reasons that retailers uh, will, will open more locations. I'm always looking for the guy that wants to, that's got three locations and wants to open a fourth. That's my favorite. And where you find those people is literally, literally going door to door to door. Now, the other ways to do it is through Facebook and Instagram. So what you can do is you can say, I want to, I want a nutrition store. So you can Google, let's say, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. What are the top 10 nutrition stores in Louisville? And let's say it's, you know, Ralph's, you know, A to Z nutrition. You can look that up on Facebook and there's a little blue bar that says send message and you can click on that and you can say, hi, we have a shopping center in Lexington or we have three shopping centers in Louisville. What are your expansion plans after this COVID craziness? And it's amazing how many business owners will respond. You know, when you canvas, meaning door knock, you know, going door to door, most of the time you're gonna reach the gatekeeper uh, because the owners, many of the owners don't hang out in the stores, especially if they have multiple locations. Uh, when you DM them, direct message them on either Facebook and Instagram, I would tell you 95% of the time the owner responds. So we do probably, you, you know, Facebook uh, caps you out at doing about 10, DMs, direct messages in one sitting. Uh, if you're very diligent, you can do four of those a day. In like, like let's say 10 at eight o'clock, 10 at 11 o'clock, 10 at three o'clock and 10 at eight o'clock. So you can do about 40 a day. And of the 40, um, we usually get 35 within 24 hours respond, 35 prospects. Now, of the 35 prospects, you know, 30 might say, no, thank you. But five say, where are your shopping centers? Well, five people responding, let's say three or four times a week of where are your shopping centers, you can usually convert a couple of those to deals. So I'm a huge fan of Facebook and Instagram prospecting. That's awesome. And, I, and I'll be posting a link in the description below. She, she's actually talked about this a few times in different conferences and, and various different events as well. So I'll post what she's describing in the, in the, in the section below in, in, in YouTube. Um, so that's awesome. And I guess now that we've, we've kind of been in the COVID pandemic for the last six months, uh, hopefully, I mean, we, we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. I mean, we're, we're, there's, there seems to be some news as far as the progress of the vaccine. And hopefully by the end of 2021, uh, we should be somewhat back to normal, whatever normal is at that point. 
once we get to a point where maybe COVID-19 is not necessarily as big of a front point, uh, how do you think that retail, the retail industry is going to really evolve after this? And you kind of touched on it a little bit with the drive-throughs, but I thought we would kind of elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, I, I think that un, smart entrepreneurs have really taken advantage of some of the opportunities. Um, in the Sunbelt states, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of influx of population from the Northeast and in California. Um, I'm working on 11 letters of intent. I don't, Ralph, I, I can't remember the last time I had 11 letters of intent on my six properties. It's, it is crazy, crazy busy. Uh, so I think that um, in the next, I just heard this week that Wall Street is planning on not opening in New York City for until spring, which is another seven months. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of experienced entrepreneurs moving to the Sunbelt states, especially restaurants, because they can't do outdoor seating in cold weather. So I think they're going to be looking at some of the the Southeast and Southwest states. And um, so I think that's gonna be a big change, uh, but I believe that we'll, we'll all come out of this and we'll look back and it's gonna be a blip. I think Christmas is gonna be huge for retail. I think that uh, consumers have not spent a lot of money for six months, right? I think that they haven't gone on vacation. This is my family's first vacation since March. Um, so we haven't gone on vacation. We haven't sent our kids to sleepaway camp. We didn't buy back to school, school clothes. We didn't spend money on gas and we haven't celebrated. There's, there was no Easter celebration. There was no 4th of July. There was no birthdays. There were no graduation celebrations. So I think that Christmas and the holidays are going to be, winter holidays are going to be crazy. I think people are going to decorate early and I think they're going to spend a lot of money on the family and the kids and the home. And I think that will be great for retail. But I, you know, and I just hope that the Northeastern states, you know, after the vaccine will catch up, but I believe that they will. The, the ancillary states and cities are going to, they're going to have the problem, but we are seeing a huge flight to suburbia because you know, you've got 80% of downtown business districts not filled. So that's why all my centers are in suburbia, which is why I'm so busy. So uh, it'll be interesting to see when the flight back to these cities happen. Um, I think that's gonna be the biggest change where suburbia, uh, you know, you're hearing these crazy stories about people buying homes. They want backyards, they wanna get it out of the high rises. So I think those are all the changes we'll be, we'll be watching and looking at and seeing, you know, how long does that change stay? You know, is it permanent? Is it temporary? Will people eventually, I think they'll go back to the cities, but we'll have to watch and see. I'm not sure. Yeah, definitely. And I actually read an article recently that talked about that exact phenomenon where you're starting to see some business owners rethink their, their office leases or, or, or office presence in large central business districts. And they're opting more for like a hub and spoke approach where they have a lower footprint in a larger metropolitan area and then having suburban centers, their suburban offices closer to their employees, essentially. So if they have the option to go into the office, they can do so. Or if they want to work from home, they have that option as well. So that could also definitely, like you said, impact retail in the long term if, if that becomes the new norm. But but like you said, I, I think it's interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out after it all uh, is said and done. Awesome. So for sure, as 
so as someone, and I know you're huge into personal development, this is something that you're always preaching, always looking to get better, looking to improve. Could, would you be able to provide us with some resources, whether that's books, podcasts, seminars that you've found most helpful uh, to really ex advance your, re your real estate career and just become, you know, a, essentially achieve peak performance in whatever you really want to do? I love reading. I have a book club. So we've been having a, a commercial real estate book club now for about three or four years. We do a book a month and we uh, discuss the book. Not many people read the book. I'm usually the cliff notes of the book, <laughs> but we, and we, we compare the lessons we've learned in the book to commercial real estate and mostly leasing. Um, this month's book is um, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins probably one of the most motivational books I've ever read. Uh, what that guy lived through and put his body through and his brain, you know, his, his mind through was, is, was just amazing. I can't wait. We're, I can't wait to discuss that book. Um, a couple other books that I loved, Never Split the Difference, uh, phenomenal Chris Voss for negotiations. To this day, I would say of four years of books in the book club, most people, when I see them at conferences say, that book was amazing, you know, amazing. Um, the, the book I read early on in my career that probably changed my life was called The Power of Focus. And it talked about doing 101 like goals that you wanted to achieve in your life in the next 10 years. It was a bucket list before the bucket list was even, you know, popular, popularized. And um, I had put some things on there that I thought were really reaching and I ended up achieving them. So that changed my life. Um, so I think those are the three books that I would recommend to the audience. Podcasts and conferences. I like going to conferences that are outside of what I do. So um, I haven't been to the Bigger Pockets conference, but I was considering going. Uh, I think it was in Vegas last year. Um, I think that that would be interesting. A, a friend of mine went and she said that there were very few women there. So I would like to go to that, that one. Uh, but I think it's important to go outside of your industry because I think you can learn a lot and hear different ideas of things and bring it back into your asset class and, and be creative. And um, podcasts, you know, I like how I built this uh, because it's usually how companies like Home Depot or Spanx, like how those entrepreneurs start, started those companies. So I like that along with, you know, again, all of the different, um, what, what I do is I get invited to speak on podcasts. So then I, I say, well, I, I need to listen to these people's podcasts before I'm on the podcast. So I get to hear, I just can't listen to them all, right? There's so many now, but in, three or four years ago, there were very few. So it's such a big library of opportunity for us you know, I tell my students, you know, if you're going to be in the car for 30 minutes, just listen for 10 or 15 minutes. You can listen to ESPN and Howard Stern the other 15 minutes, but educate yourself for 10 or 15 minutes. Definitely. I'll, I'll even add a hack to that. What I've been doing, and this is something I've been doing for a few years now, but I, I turn up the speed for Audible so I, right. I, I can listen to it a lot quicker. So I put it on like 2x speed and I'm able to get through books a lot quicker. And you're, you actually can listen quicker than you can write or, or, or whatever else. So it's, it's definitely a cool hack if that's something you're interested in. So yeah, 
obviously you've 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 come from the starting point. And I know that I think I mean I've, I've listened to your book and it, it, I remember you mentioning that when you first got started in retail investing, you were kind of hesitant, and then your boss actually, I think, was it he loaned you the money to actually invest in your co-sign. Co-sign, oh, yeah, re- yeah, he co-signed a fifty thousand dollar note for me to invest. That's huge, and I'm sure that I mean that that's like a life changing moment in your life, and that's pretty cool. But it like, could you tell us maybe maybe the top three lessons you've learned from the starting point where you have not really nothing um, as far as retail investments are concerned to now where you own multiple shopping centers that are tens of millions of dollars in assets, right? Uh, could you maybe share with us some of the top lessons you've learned over that that period of time? Yeah, the first lesson is to save money. So he had come to me and asked me three times to invest. And I never had the money. I, you know, I had a Jaguar. <laughs> I'd gone to Hawaii. I was making, you know, six figures doing leasing and I wasn't putting any money aside. And so I lost out on three other investments before he literally dragged me by the neck and took me to the bank and co-signed the note, which then um, I, we invested the 50,000 six months later, refied. And I got that 50 back, paid the bank back and made hundreds of thousands of dollars from that investment over the years that we owned it. So um, I always tell, again, my students, save, 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 because you never know when an opportunity might come. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, really understanding the market and having market knowledge. Um, I've been, a lot of my successes have come from knowing this like like having relationships with leasing people in the market to where they're telling me the real scoop, not what LoopNet or CoStar might say. So being able to call my friend Susan and she says, I just renewed AT&T for 50 bucks a square foot, triple net in 5,000 square feet. And no one else knows that information. So when I'm bidding on the strip club property, against five other bidders, I can bid more because I know that my location out positions the one where she had the AT&T renewal. And so I paid an extra 300,000. Other bigger, richer, smarter people than me were bidding against me and thought I was crazy. And then we have, you know, currently an NOI north of 600,000 and we spent, we we paid for the land 3.3. So we didn't pay too much. And it was that insider knowledge that had to do with the relationships built over time and the market knowledge. And, you know, whether it's whatever asset class, whether it's industrial, self-storage, multifamily, it's so important to understand what are the rents people are getting, um, you know, what was sold for what and when, and really understanding that and not really listening or looking at the seller's comp list, you know, that the seller is going to manufacture that to make the property look in its best light. You have to do your own homework. And, and, and that goes back to farming, you know, so all of my, I have six shopping centers. They're valued at about 80 million. They're all within 10 to 15 minutes of my house. So I know that market cold. I shop in that market. I live in that market. We go to church in that market. My kids go to school in that market. I know that market. So farming and keeping that acquisition area as as tight as possible so you can in all that time you invest 
in your at your like so the first time I bought in Davy, I now own three deals in Davy. I know the market better than anyone else. If something else comes up in Davy, I'm going to know if it's a good buy or not. That's awesome. And then for, uh, that that kind of lends itself to what you said is those relationships. And so getting involved and meeting people, and I mean that's why we have this meetup, right? This is why we continue to do these types of things because. You can't replace relationships. You can't replace market knowledge. And those who have the market knowledge are those who are are coming to these meetups, right? They're the ones who are seeking to be better. They're the ones seeking to really change their life. So, um, yeah, I think I, I think it's phenomenal information. So now that we've kind of gone through the the, the preset questions, if anyone in, in the Zoom chat uh, you want to plug in a, a, a or you want to just chime in and, and ask a question, I'll also be checking Facebook. Um, to see if we have any questions as well. We have a few people watching on Facebook as well. So feel free to ask away. I answered all of their questions. I know. Yeah, I mean, you did a great job. I really like the detail you all you provided, so. I've got a question. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Hey, um, great stuff. A lot of the things that I had written down, a lot of them were answered. Thank you, Beth. I, I do have a few centers. Uh, I've basically just started. I've been in this business for about two years. And I mean, Rafe's met me in the sense that I just have a whole bunch of shopping centers and I have these, you know, these little like 2000 square foot places that I'm trying to lease. And some of them are anchored by like some really high tier tenants. And so I want to get a hold of like, you know, for my owners, I want to get hold of big tenants, you know, national tenants. And do you have any tips on cold calling? Because I've done a lot of it and it's just, it's not as proactive as like what you said, it's just getting a hold of local places around town and franchisees and stuff. Sure. So the best way to, when you're first starting to get a hold of a national tenant mm -hmm. is to find their corporate headquarters. So let's pick um, yeah. Panera, you know, Panera corporate. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Panera corporate based in St. Louis, you look them up online, call, mm -hmm. literally just call their corporate number and say, who handles real estate? Yeah. They'll, they'll say to you, what market? You'll say Louisville, Kentucky. They'll say John Smith yeah. and you'll, they'll give you John Smith's number or you go onto LinkedIn yeah. And look up on LinkedIn, you know, who handles Panera corporate. So now you've got John Smith. Mm -hmm. um, so the best way to get their attention, Corey, is to send the following. A map of Panera's locations in Louisville. And on that map include their competitors. So whatever you think might be their competitors. You yes. know, maybe Atlanta Bread. Maybe it's. Jason's Deli, I don't know whoever the competitors are. And then the flyer of your property mm -hmm. and kind of a, maybe one reason why you think Panera would be good. So if you read an article that said Panera wants to transfer, to convert all their locations to drive-through, you yeah. say, dear John, I know you have a Panera at A and, you know, A slash B street. I'm my center's on C slash D street but I have an end cap of 4,000 square feet at, with a drive-through. Right. And I know I'm down the street from you, but I read an article that you want to convert your locations to drive-throughs. So John, Mr. Smith will call you back or respond. What the nationals hate is when we send a flyer for an 82,000 square foot box to a 4,000 square foot Panera. They're not going to call you back. 
I mean, retailers send me letters where it says, you know, hey, Beth, I'm floors to go floor, floor. Oh, God, 42 floors and all that. Right. No, I'm 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 82,000 square feet. And this guy sent me an email. Sent me an email for a Manhattan location with 1200 square feet. And they said, dear Michael. (laughs) So that so we have to be specific and Mm -hmm. we have to do one at a time. And people say, well, I'll never get enough done. Well, you know, if I needed if I wanted to do 10 national deals, mm-hmm. I would have to contact a hundred yeah. myself. I've been doing this for 35 years. So if I had to contact a hundred retailers and I had to do a hundred maps, that mm-hmm. would be two a week. I can do that. So if you want the retailer to call you back, that's how you do it. The other way is to, um, you can, there's like retail lease track. There's other kind of books and mm-hmm. online services that you can become a part of, but you really don't need to spend that money. Mm-hmm. You can really just call their corporate headquarters. Yeah. And then then sometimes you'll reach out to John Smith and he'll say, call my broker, you know, Beth Azor. Yeah, that's usually just, what happens, yeah. If I yeah, do get a hold of you just call them. the broker. Okay, yeah, a lot of good information. Like I, I basically do everything you did, you said, except making it as, specified as you said and i think a lot of great information as far as uh actually putting out a map in the competitors that, that'll probably be pretty helpful so thank you yeah i did i put out a linkedin post about a year ago and i said hey national retailers we know that you guys hate email blasts <laughs> how do you want us to contact you yeah you know what do you want and, and literally dollar tree and home depot mm-hmm. and sephora they all wrote back send us a map do we have maps yes can we do maps? Yes. yes. But we want to know that you took some time and you weren't lazy and just sent, you know, your 1200 square foot space and didn't consider that I'm a 4,000 square foot tenant. That's great. Yeah. That's really good information. Cause I've worked with like Dollar Tree and stuff before. So, okay. Good stuff. We, we have a, we have a question, a few questions on Facebook. So what we'll go ahead and do is uh, start off. Hey, hey, Philip, how's it going? He said, he said, uh, what is the best area of commercial to get started in today's market with little capital? It was more of an investment question, I guess, but. Uh, well, if it was retail, uh, you could probably, depending on the markets, a friend of mine just bought an empty, like 3000 square foot freestanding building. I think it was an auto parts store in Wichita. And I think he bought it for 300,000. So he got uh, six friends together and they all put in 50, they leased it and refied out. He's very happy. So um, so I think if you have little, I don't know what little capital is, so maybe find friends that are investing. Like for me, that first investment, like like I said, my boss literally went and co-signed a note for 50,000 and we, we it, that was for about a $10 million shopping center, but I was a teeny, teeny piece of 50,000 of that. Um, so um, I'm not sure. So. You know, maybe you can find a building for 130, you know, it just depends on the market. The smaller the market, the lower the price of the deal, um, but then the lower the rent, right? So, so it's all relative. Um, so I'm, I don't know about other asset classes to give advice on, but in retail, this, the, 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 the lowest price investment would probably be a freestanding building. 
Yeah. And that that's great what you said too, where you, you find the tenant. So that, that's another thing is if you were to buy the building and you know that you either establish a relationship with a particular tenant that you know would be able to pay a certain amount for that space, and then you get them on a long-term lease, and then you refi out. Because then at that point, you know, you may have your money tied up for a little while, but then when you refi out, you may be able to get it out. And banks would, banks love, I mean, it depends on the bank right now, given what's going on. But generally speaking, if you have a long-term tenant with a solid financial position um, and it's on a long-term lease, banks tend to look favorably on that. So that could be a great starting point for you if that's something you're interested in. Awesome. So Krista, hey, Krista, how's it going um, she, she's asking what type of tenants show that an area might be in decline. Do you think CBD stores are perceived as positive or negative? So CB, CBD stores are a problem if you have a mortgage because the lenders won't allow you to lease to them. So, um, so I've not done one because I have mortgages on all but one property. Uh, and then the, uh, that property I don't have a mortgage on. I have a tenant called casual mail DXL, which is large men's clothes, like men's clothing for larger guys, like Husky guys. And it's in their lease that they say, I can't lease to a CBD. So um, there are restrictions in both leases and mortgages to against CBDs. So that's a concern. Um, what, whenever I see a church as a tenant, uh, I'm not interested in that property because that's you know almost like giving the space away for free. And if the landlord's going to give a space away for free to a church, that means he can't lease his shopping center. I used to think that about Army and Navy uh, recruiting offices, but they recently came to one of my centers or, or wanted to lease in one of my centers and they were going to pay the market rent. <laughs> but So I don't think that about them anymore. Um, there are some centers in, we have a, I do one third party client and we have a center in an inner city, lower income market of Miami. Um, but, you know, we'd have check cashing, we have 7-Eleven, we have uh, Wings Plus, we have Metro PCS, we have an urgent care, we have a Dunkin' Donuts, and they're all paying very, very healthy rents. So uh, just because it's lower income demographic doesn't mean it's a declining area. Um, I would never buy or invest in a shopping center where there was 10 other shopping centers in the, in, within a mile that had significant vacancy. That's an area of decline. You never want, you know, I've, I've people call me all the time, will you give me your feedback on this deal I'm going to buy? It's a great deal. I can buy it for $25 a square foot. It would take $100 to re for replacement costs. And then I look at the market and it's, you know, there's 20 shopping centers with 40% occupancy. I go, this is why you can buy it for 25. You're never going to lease it. Stay away. So it doesn't really matter sometimes the price, uh, you know, the, the buying price versus the replacement cost. It matters on the market and what you can lease it for. That's, yeah, that's great advice. And I, I have one question related to actually tenant mix, because I know that's extremely important in the retail space. And I know you talk about it a lot uh, in, in your various uh, videos that you've done. Uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit about what, what type of tenant mix would be healthy for a center? And then also what location within the center? Because I know you talk about end caps, you know, you talk about elbow spaces. So maybe if you could elaborate a little bit on that, I think that would be helpful. Yeah. Healthy tenant mix, it depends on the market. Um, there's, so each, every shopping center 
has its share of what we call destination and impulse spaces. So destination spaces are the spaces where they, it might have zero visibility and exposure. It's in the back of the center. It's in the elbow of the shopping center. It's not up on the street like in the, in the end cap position. Uh, those spaces we call impulse spaces because you're driving down the street. Oh, a yogurt shop. Let me pull in. Um, a destination tenant, for example, is a, a daycare. You'll pass 30 daycares as a consumer to go to the daycare that your kid's at. So we want to make sure we lease the right tenants in the right spaces. You would never put a daycare on an impulse end cap space. You don't need to give up that prime real estate for a daycare because the consumer is going to go find that daycare wherever it is. So it's, it's important to put the right tenant in the right space in the shopping center. Um, and because there's a, it, it just, it's very, very important. All destination tenants wanna be in high visible locations and they can succeed. But impulse tenants, yogurt spot, yogurt tenants can never succeed in an impulse in the corner space. They could never succeed. So you, you don't wanna put the wrong tenant in the wrong, you know, the, the wrong tenant in the wrong space. Um, and then tenant mix, it depends on the market. So if you are in a lower economic area, you're not gonna put a tutoring place, right? You're, you might wanna put a coin laundry. So you have to match up the tenants with the economic uh, demographics around you and the traffic. If you have a hospital, um, I, have, I have three centers across from a hospital. I'm currently looking for a uniform store to put in one of my vacancies. Um, I have a lot of restaurants because the hospital visitors like to go to restaurants. I have a university across the street. So we have a smoothie place and a, a bubble tea place. So you, there's certain tenants that will go around certain daytime dra traffic drivers. Definitely. And I know, I remember you, you, you mentioned this a few times where you target certain uses for particular spaces within your center. So you may one day just do Facebook prospecting of strictly a yogurt place or strictly this one place. So you can kind of consolidate into one area and try to right. um, really target for that area. So awesome. All right. Uh, another question from Krista. So square footage aside, do you charge different rates for impulse and destination locations within a shopping strip? I do. So impulse spaces definitely get more um, and different uses get charged more. Pizza restaurants can, can pay more rent than bike stores. And it has a lot to do with their margins and, you know, their profitability. Jewelry stores can pay more. Nail salons can pay more. Um, bike stores can't pay more. So uh, it's definitely use specific. There's a book called, um, it was, it was, uh, produced by the Urban Land Institute called Dollars and Cents. And it has all of the different uses and what they can afford to pay uh, percentage-wise. Um, it's called their occupancy cost, what, the, what they typically can pay per their use. So, um, but it was the last edition was in 08. I have a copy of that 08 and people have found it on eBay. It's hard to get a hold of. I'm sure if you Googled something like, you know, what are the occupancy costs of bike stores or jewelry stores, you can figure that out. But definitely um, different spaces, different size spaces, different location spaces and different businesses. It's across the board. You know, you don't 
you don't open a shopping center and say, or, or buy a shopping center and say, all, all the rents are $20. A 6,000 square foot space versus a 1,000 square foot space, different rents. Bike store versus pizza, different rents. End cap versus elbow, different rents. Awesome. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome information. Uh, so also we have another question. Hey, Craig, how's it going? So Craig currently has a, an, a freestanding building zoned OR2, which locally here in Louisville is, is an office residential use um, for a thousand square feet. And he has an insurance tenant who's leaving soon. So he's, he's kind of asking about going forward, given what's happening with COVID, do you see leasing issues in, I guess in this case, it would be an office space or retail space because um, you can maybe convert. He can, well, I have to see on that zoning. I, I don't know exactly if you could put a retail use in that space, but uh, so I guess what his main question is it, with COVID the way it's going right now, do you see any problems with leasing buildings in the for foreseeable future? And let's just say in the retail space. I think it's market specific, Ralph, right? I mean, I would tell you in, in Manhattan, yes, there's a lot of problems. In South Florida, no problems. So I think you know, you have to, to it really deter, is determined by the market. Um, if, in, if around his building, there was a lot of vacancy, then the answer would be yes, right? So I don't, I don't, I think it's really market specific, unfortunately. No, no, and I agree. I mean, real estate in general is market specific. So thanks for that feedback. All right, so that's, any more questions on Facebook? I'll give it about a minute or so to, you got all your uh, questions, Corey? I have one more quick question. Um, Beth, do you have any um, any advice as to how to contact like medical practitioners, the ones that are trying to set out on their own to, to you know to open new dentist offices and like I have some spaces that are ideal for medical, but I don't always know how to contact some of these people that are you know interested in in going out and doing that. I would find your local hospital facilitator and I'd go have a meeting with them because I think they know who those people are. Okay. And I would, um, I'd also probably post on Facebook. Uh, I have, you know, I'm looking for dentists or orthopedics or whatever. I own a yeah. shopping center on this street. Um, you know, maybe if it's a former, if you have a medical space that's a former medical space, I would mm -hmm. maybe do a, 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 a video and walk through it. Yeah. And say, look at this great former, dentist space here's the the here's the x-ray room here's the waiting room here's the three lab offices here's the you know i would do that and i would post it on craigslist linkedin instagram facebook someone's going to see that and say wow you know my son's looking for a new dentist office or my dentist is looking for a new dentist office so that's what i and then i would then probably also say does anyone know maybe on linkedin is there any medical broker that tenant reps medical? Because in, mm -hmm. in South Florida, we have people that like are exclusively medical tenant reps. Yeah. Okay. All good yeah. advice. Thank you. And I want, I'm, and this is, I'm, I, I haven't really represented anyone in the, in the medical field as of yet, but uh, we have a dental school here in Louisville too. So I don't know if maybe reaching out to someone at the U of L, you know, yeah. dental school. Yeah. Um, I'm not to say that all and, the people, coming out of dental school are going to start their own practice, but who knows who they know, you know, it's probably a pretty tight knit community. I'd imagine if you stay local. Yeah. And they, they probably have like a job board, right. Or a newsletter that maybe you could post something on. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
All good advice. Thank you. All right. So I think that's all the questions we have those thus far. I just want to thank you, Beth, for hopping on the call. Uh, I love the, like I said, I love the years and really do enjoy the, uh, the rest of your day in Disneyland. Hopefully you can make that 2 p.m. Uh, call. So. Thank you. All right. See you guys. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Yeah. See ya.